Welcome to Deep in Scripture. I'm your host, Marcus Grodi. Today's program is a special re-air of a previous program broadcast in 2006 of an interview with Father Ray Ryland and Dr. Kenneth Hull. We're sharing this program in honor of Father Ryland, who passed from this life on Thursday, March 20th, 2014. Father Ryland served as a naval officer in World War II before he attended Union Theological Seminary and was subsequently ordained to the ministry. He served for a number of years as a minister of the Episcopal Church until in 1963 he was received with his wife Ruth and their five children into the Catholic Church. Twenty years later, he was the second former Anglican priest to be ordained to the priesthood of the Catholic Church with a dispensation from the rule of celibacy. Father taught theology at the University of San Diego and Franciscan University of Steubenville and served as an assistant at St. Peter's Church in Steubenville, Ohio. Most dear to us, though, he served as the chaplain and vice president of the Coming Home Network International since it was formed back in 1993. Father Ryland's conversion story is in our book, Journeys Home, available through CH Resources, but is also told in his recently published memoir, Drawn from Shadows into Truth. Please join me now as Father Ryland, Dr. Kenneth Howell, and I discuss 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. My name is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. It's a I consider it a great privilege to be able to study Scripture with you. And each week on this program, I'll have with me friends and guests who will have most of the time suggested a, a Scripture that they'd like to discuss with us. Uh, but you're an, an essential part of this program. It's not just a time for, uh, for my guests and I to sit here and gab about Scripture, but f- to hear your questions as you listen to our discussion, and then pose your own ideas about this study of today's text. I'm going to tell you that scripture passage that we're looking at today. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So even as I'm introducing my guests, if you haven't got your Bible in front of you, you want to run out and grab it, pull it off the shelf. If you don't have a Bible nearby, you can go to our website, deepinscripture.com. As soon as you click onto that website, you'll see today's scripture. Also, you'll be able to go to the study notes that we'll be using today, if you want to look at those, print them out, and follow along with us. My guests today are two very good personal friends. Part of the reason they're here at our studios at the Coming Home Network International is that we had a board meeting today, and they're both on the the board of the Coming Home Network International, but they're also... uh, pastors. Uh, One is Dr. Kenneth Howell. Besides having been a Presbyterian pastor, you taught at Reformed Seminary for a while? Yes, Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I was uh, an assistant and associate professor of biblical languages and literature, so I taught Hebrew and Greek and and Latin and and questions of biblical interpretation. All right, thank you, Ken. We also have with us uh, Father Ray Ryland. Father Ryland was an Episcopal priest and now a Catholic. Father Ray, do you still teach at Steubenville? Occasionally. I'm an adjunct professor there. I haven't taught the last couple of years or so. I taught for a good many years at the University of San Diego as professor of religious studies there. I also do a little bit of work with the Coming Hope Network. That's right. 
uh, and I'm an, an assistant at uh, St. Peter's Church in Steubenville, Ohio. All right. The passage that we have chosen for our study today is, is I can guarantee, is not unfamiliar to both of you, right? I mean, just right off the bat, uh, where does this passage usually arise in discussion? Why do people use this passage, in fact, even from your background? Well, at least in the tradition that I uh, was raised in and, and became a minister in, uh, this text, in fact, is probably the central text to support the idea of a sola scriptura, or that the scriptures are the only authority for faith and life. And so, for many Protestant Christians, uh, including myself for many years, um, they go to a passage like this where it says that all scripture is inspired by God, because in their minds, and once in my mind as well, it seemed to suggest that the scriptures are sufficient, all that we need in order to uh, in order to achieve a life of godliness, of holiness, to achieve a, a to be ready for every good work, as Paul says in this text. I have two goals for today's program. Number one, I want us to look at this passage, the context of this passage. What was this passage intended to say? What does it say? How is it used and sometimes abused? So we'll do the study of that passage. And the second goal is to talk about the scriptures, this Bible, this book. Where did it come from and why, to what extent we equate this book, this collection of books, with the word scripture that's there in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I mean, why do we look to this book to help us abide in Jesus Christ? And that's an underlying goal of this program. Why don't we begin, though, with the passage itself? Let's look at the passage. Uh, what was the context of this passage? While I, I, I'm say, saying that, let me read the passage entirely because it's not a long passage, but for those of you traveling in your car, you wonder what it is we're looking at. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 17. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the first thing I want to point out, just in connection to what we talked about last week, those of you listen, you notice that right off the bat, Paul uses the word continue. As for you, continue, that's the same word for abide, for remain. It means that our salvation in Jesus Christ requires a diligent following and obedience to him and to his word. And so that fits in with the passage. Paul is saying, continue in the things you've received. So what is the context of what, why Paul wrote this letter and what, what was he encouraging his people in this letter? Well, of course, the context, you've already stated it uh, in capsule form. He's writing to a fledgling <laughs> clergyman, shall we say, to yep. be somewhat anachronistic, and uh, needed guidance. And this comes from um, the very wise apostle near the, apparently near the end of his active life. 
and he's recalling him, I think, to a tradition. He says, what you've learned, continue in that. And if we go back to the beginning of, of this, uh, this same book, he talks about this young man's grandmother, talks about his mother. You learned that from your mother and your grandmother's knees, so to speak. And it would say that in the light of that, then you know how to come to the scriptures. So I think from the very beginning, this talk about scripture is put in the context of the tradition out of which it comes. Which right off the bat uh, challenged the idea that this is somehow teaching sola scriptura because he begins in this context of telling him to hold on to not what, you, not what he read, yes. but what he heard, yes. what he received, what yes. he believed, yes. and trusting in it because of who taught that to him. Yes. So you have the power of oral tradition already referenced at the beginning of this section. Well, part of it too is is the way that Timothy learned, as Father said, is from his grandmother and from his mother. And Paul exhorts him to remember those things. But that's not really very different than the way that we learn the scriptures. For those of us that have grown up in Christian homes of any type, we learn the scriptures from our parents or from the pastors as they preach. And in fact, we come to interpret the Bible the way we're taught to interpret it. So when we're coming to the Bible, it's not as if we're coming with a blank slate, a tabula rasa. We come to it with certain ideas as to what it's teaching because we've heard other people. So we, we have a sort of, each one of us has a sort of experience of oral tradition in the way that we grow up. That's not a bad thing. We just have to examine that as we get older and look at him. And that's why he says, then also study Scripture, because the Scriptures are going to lead you to be the kind of clergyman or the pastor that you need to be. What's the significance of the fact that, think about when did Paul write this? Again, he's writing to Timothy. The significance fact that he is saying, the sacred writings that they've been acquainted with from his childhood. So when he uses the phrase sacred writings or scriptures, what would he be referring to in this passage? What we call the Old Testament, of course. That's all the scripture there was at the time St. Paul is writing. But it's also true that the average Jewish person would not have owned the scrolls because there were no books bound together at the time. (laughs) They would not have owned the scrolls in their home. What he's referring to is that every Jewish boy and maybe girls as well, we can't quite tell, had to learn scripture by heart. There's a story that one of my seminary professors told me when he was studying in Israel with an Orthodox rabbi. He's a, he was a Christian, but he was studying with an Orthodox rabbi. This Orthodox rabbi, as they were reading something in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew rabbi said, oh, you know what? That reminds me of something it says over here in this other psalm. And he quoted the psalm in Hebrew from memory. And then he quoted all 150 psalms in Hebrew from memory. We don't realize how ancient people learned. They, They committed these things, every detail to memory. That's probably what Timothy's mother and grandmother did, and that's how they taught him. I mean, to a certain extent, we live in a culture that's become brain dead, lazy, and I, I'm not pointing fingers. You know, we we become dependent on our little, little written daytimers or our little digital 
uh, things that control our lives because if we don't do that, we'll forget. Well, the problem is once we kind of hand it over that part of our brain to use that to memorize, then we don't try to memorize. But this is from a time when memory was the key way that people knew anything. Right. They didn't have libraries. They didn't have digital things. They didn't have internet. They didn't have television and radio. Pens or paper were expensive for the average person. Right. So oral, oral tradition was something that was trustworthy, was honored, was protected. We even see that going back to the Jewish world. Remember the where the father and the son during the Passover, they repeat this, what God had done in the history of Israel, that whole idea was what the Christian passing on of truth was built on, was presumed. And so the idea of having only a book, and even in that passage, he's referring to the sacred scriptures, but the main point is who taught it to you, what you learned from who had taught you their scriptures, because they didn't have it in their home. Yeah, we use a technical word in verse 16 where it says all Scripture is inspired by God. But the Greek word graphe and the corresponding Hebrew word could simply mean every writing. And so he may not even be referring to the whole Old Testament. He may or may not. I'm not sure. But he could be simply referring every writing that you have is inspired by God. And by that it means that the Greek word theopneustos doesn't mean inspired by God in some general sense, it means God breathed. Mm. So that God breathed into the mind and the heart of the scriptural writer what he wanted to be communicated uh, to the people of God. So Timothy, as the bishop or as a priest in one, of, in one of the churches where he was there, he may very well have simply had a collection of uh, what we call manuscripts, would be scrolls, and he says, everyone that you have there is inspired by God. You can trust it, which means he may not be making a statement about the entire yeah. thing. He may simply be making a statement about the ones that you have. Well, talk about that use of that passage for today. Because I even, when I was a Presbyterian pastor, would hold up the Bible. And when I would read this passage, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable teaching, I would therefore use that almost as a proof text to say, okay, this book that I'm holding up is therefore inspired by profitable teaching. I'm making a, a direct connect there. Is is that possible to make that direct connect? Is there a flaw in that direct connect? Well, one of the problems here is what inspired means. I remember when I started seminary, my first professor, who was one of the translators of the Revised Standard Version, Henry Cadbury, mm -hmm. God rest his soul, mm -hmm assured us in class that inspired means, he said, this is inspired in the same sense in which Shakespeare and Milton and Dante are inspired. Exalted language, noble thoughts, period. When I heard that, I was surprised. I thought it meant more than that. However, I realized immediately that I couldn't prove from Scripture that he was wrong in what he said about inspiration. And so I began to ask the question, where does the whole notion of, of inspiration come from? That word is too vague. It's much too vague. We could say in a sense that Shakespeare at his best was God-inspired, or God, almost God-breathed. And that's when I began to realize that I knew it was inspired from some other source outside of Scripture. That is such a key point, because there are other books around the world and other religions that claim inspiration, that others claim that they're inspired. I remember once in a guy came to my door and handed me a book, 
and wanted me to read it. And his, his words were, I want you to read this and pray that the Holy Spirit will touch your heart and he'll let you know that this is an inspired book. Well, again, that problem, if the Bible is the sole foundation of truth, but yet you can't prove from within it that that is true, then what does prove that that book is inspired and therefore trustworthy for all the things that Paul says in this passage, for salvation, for you know, growth in, in our spiritual life, so that we can be a good man and woman equipped to do what God wants us to do. Why this book? And I'm hoping that my audience doesn't think that we, in any way we don't believe in the inspiration and power of Scripture, because all of us, of course, do and are dedicated to Scripture. But we'll come back in a moment after a quick break and talk about where this book we call the Bible came from. Did it drop out of the sky in the good King James Version uh, with this particular selection of books? Which books? Why this canon? Why do we trust this? And how can we then study it to make sure that we are, in fact, growing closer to Jesus every day in our life? Let's take a break. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program with Father Ray Ryland and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're talking about 2 Timothy. We'll be back in just a moment with your questions and our further discussion on growing deep in Scripture. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. The underlying text that we're studying today is 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's that verse that's been used almost universally uh, to prove uh, in many people's minds the idea of sola scriptura. But I, our goal in the opening of this program was to challenge the idea, not that Scripture is inspired. We, of course, believe that. But that that verse, in fact, doesn't necessarily teach it or that what Paul was referring to in this passage, all Scripture, necessarily equates with that book that all of us have holding down our coffee table in our living room, or that we carry with us, or that we bought at the bookstore that we gave to somebody for their birthday. But let me ask Father Ray and, and Ken, when we think about where this book came from that we call the Bible, from your experience as pastors, where would you say the average person thinks that the book came from? That's a good question because I'm not sure that most Christians really know where it came from unless they study it in the, the study of the formation of the canon, the translations. But m many of them just pick it up and take it as if 
this is um, the way it's always been. They really don't even inquire into the... Now, when you go into studying theology and the history behind it, then, of course, you realize there's a long history behind the formation of the Bible. But, but I don't think many Christians think about that question. I've heard pastors claim that the Bible is self-authenticating, and the fact that it's there in the Bible uh, means that it's authentic. But that, that's somewhat circular reasoning. Wasn't that Calvinist argument? Follow me. Yeah, it is Calvinist argument. argument, yeah. I have a book called The Apocryphal New Testament. It contains fragments remain of several hundred writings from the first, second, and third centuries. In some cases, all we have are titles, but there are considerable fragments. And there was a small library of writings to which didn't get in. Now, the question is, how come out of that vast amount of material, 27 books were selected and became what we now call the New Testament? Well, we could take that question back even one step further into the Old Testament because the best scholarship that we have at this point in, in our study suggests that even at the time of Paul writing this to Timothy, there was not a settled Old Testament either. <laughs> so, for example, the 39 books that are in the now in the, in the Hebrew Bible were probably, it wasn't settled maybe until somewhere near the late first century, maybe 90 AD. Mm -hmm. If there was such a thing as the Council of Jamnia, then, then maybe that was where it happened, or it happened even later in Judaism. Because at this time, many of the Greek-speaking Christians read the Septuagint, the translation, the Greek translation that was done by Alexandrian Jews in around the year 250 B.C. That had the additional books, the so-called additional books, the Deuterocanonicals that we have in the Catholic Bible, but that was part of the Old Testament at that time. So neither the New Testament nor the Old Testament was a settled, agreed-on list of books at this time. One of the reasons that many scholars believe that when Paul or Timothy or the other New Testament writers referred to the Old Testament— they would call it the scriptures, that they were using the Septuagint. One of the reasons is that when you compare quotes in the New Testament documents, when they're quoting the Old Testament, and you look at the original languages, that the Greek of the quotes equates with the Septuagint and doesn't always match with the Hebrew. That's right. That's especially true. Do you have an example? Maybe yeah, in, he, in Hebrews 10, 5 is a perfect example of that. Because there he's quoting from Psalm 40, and he says that uh, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away uh, sin. And then he says, so the one coming into the world says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. That, in the Greek, the body you prepared for me is the Septuagint Greek text. And he's quoting from that. If you go back to the Hebrew of Psalm 40, it says, you have pierced my ear. Not in the sense of modern people, but it was a sign of being a slave or being a servant. So the Hebrew text and the Greek text are very significantly different at that point. And he's clearly quoting from the Greek text. One of the places that I often point out is that famous passage in Romans that Luther himself used, that the righteous will live by their faith. If you compare the passage in your English translation, in Romans, 
and then you go to where it's quoting in the Old Testament. They mm-hmm. aren't word for word. There's something different, even in the English. Mm-hmm. But if you compared the Greek behind the Roman passage and compared it to the Septuagint quote of that Old Testament quote, they're word for word. The Greek is exactly the same. So the implication is that when Paul was quoting from the passage in the Old Testament, he was quoting from the Septuagint. And the point being, he was quoting from the Septuagint, which had all the Old Testament books that are now in the Catholic canon. And so the implication is there that when we use the word scriptures, there's a good argument that we're referring to what we now consider the Old Testament canon. But now let's let's move on because I want to give a kind of a quick overview of how that book came about. So you have the Old Testament scriptures. What came next? So you have the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the appointing of the 12, the teaching of the 12. You have the death and the resurrection of Christ, the apostles, the ascension of Jesus, Pentecost. When does the New Testament start happening? Well, you're forgetting something here, Marcus. You see, remember on the last night of Jesus' life, he said to his disciples, he took them into a library, (laughs) and he took a book off the shelf, and he said, take, read, this is my book. (laughs) Didn't you remember that? (laughs) I don't remember that in my Bible. Oh, okay. (laughs) There was another verse at the end of Matthew where when he gathered them together in a hill, he said, go ye therefore and make committees. Oh, <laughs> and those committees were to sit down and edit these books, which they were to publish and make sure they got a good agent so that they got enough profits right. so they could support themselves for the future. In their mission. That's well, right. the truth yeah. is, Jesus, we have no record of Jesus commanding his apostles to write anything down. What did he command them to do? Well, of course, he commanded them to preach the gospel. But before he did that, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. That's right. So what he established was a church, yes. which had apostles who were going, to, going out to preach the gospel, and it's their authoritative message, which was to guide the life of the church. Thereafter. In fact, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, I recommend to everyone listening to take time to study and read and listen to what Jesus is telling his hand-chosen apostles about how they will know what is true, how they'll remember what is true, protect what is true, and pass it on. What did he do? He promised them the Holy Spirit. That's the reason, eventually, I'm jumping ahead of ourselves, the reason that in 300 years later, they will decide that these books are trustworthy and inspired is because what Jesus promised in John 14, 15, and 16, that the Holy Spirit would be given to his church to guide them into what is truth. And what isn't truth, they'll be able to discern that. Another factor to keep in mind is that in that selection process, as a good many scholars are telling us today, the selection of writings was intended primarily originally for the use in the liturgy. And as the weeding uh, process went on, or the selection process went on, there's really one criterion. Does it or does it not authentically reflect what the church has been teaching and does teach? If it does, it's in. If it doesn't, it's out. And realization of that fact was a significant factor in my own pilgrimage into the Catholic Church. I'm just thinking of a passage, maybe you all can... Remind it where Paul is telling people to read. Oh, yeah, it's in the end of Colossians 
Paul, at the end of that letter, says, Give my greetings to the brethren at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. Now, the very interesting story. What were they doing? They were reading it in their gathering, the celebration of the Eucharist and the Mass. And that was the determination. Well, the church later decided, whether it was lost or whatever, that this other letter wasn't deemed a part mm-hmm. of the canon. Yeah, we have a we don't have the original Greek of that, but we do have a Latin copy of that letter. But it's not, but it would never was seriously considered to be a part of Scripture, partly because apparently the apostles never endorsed it as a text of the Bible so much. Nor I think what Father said is very significant. Nor was it read in the liturgy. We don't even know that all the different churches and all the different areas of the ancient world had the same text that they were reading in their churches, but we know there was a core. We know the four Gospels were there. We know the epistles of Paul were there. We know um, the, probably the letter of Hebrews and some others. But they had the, in different areas, they may have had different collections. And the significant way in which that was all sorted out was precisely uh, they would— Find out, okay, what are you doing in Constantinople? What are you doing in Jerusalem? What are you doing in Antioch and Alexandria and Rome and so forth? And that's how they were beginning to find out what the Scriptures taught. Let's, uh, let me quote this verse from 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 2, and then talk about the, what this verse refers to in the next important step of the development of the New Testament canon. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. What does this refer to? This is the carrying on of the oral tradition, the teaching. A lot of people don't trust tradition. Talk about the importance of that as a foundation for what we now call the New Testament. If you don't trust the tradition, then you, you can't trust the New Testament. Because the New Testament is is a summing up of the key elements of the church's teaching and the church's preaching. It's interesting, too, Marcus, in light of what Father just said. That text, by the way, in the New International Version, which was done by evangelical scholars in the 1960s, it translates, and they may have changed it by now later editions, but earlier, it translates the Greek word parodesis in 1 Corinthians 11.2, not as traditions, but teachings. It has neutralized the force of that word. The word teaching in Greek is didaskalia. The word for tradition is parodosis, which means the handing on of something. Yes. Now, if you look at, if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see what he's talking about. He's talking about women having their head covered in worship. And we won't deal with that. (laughs) That's too complicated. But then he goes on to talk about abuses in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was liturgical forms that were handed on by the apostle to the Corinthian church. And you know what? If they hadn't had problems with their liturgy, we would never know about that at all. But it was only because they were departing from the tradition that Paul gave. Let's take our first caller. Hello, Anthony. What's your question for us today? Hello, Marcus. 
I was wondering, when Paul and the other apostles were writing the epistles or the gospels, did they know at the time that they were writing scripture? Uh, thanks, Anthony, for your call. What do you think, Father Ray? Ken? Well, the only indication, what, do you know anything about that, Father? The only indication that I can think of that they did, uh, that they were aware of the authority of it, was in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he's talking about uh, the complications about married people and unmarried people. And he says in 1 Corinthians, and I've forgotten exactly the verse, but it's in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, uh, you know, he who wants to dispute this line of acknowledge what I say to you is the command of the Lord. So that's one thing. The other one is in second, and then this is an interesting one, Second Peter, at the very end of the book in chapter three, Peter says to um, says about Paul's writings yes. that they are yes. inspired by God, and he says, for example, um, and consider the the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Even this is in Second Peter three fifteen, even as our beloved brother Paul wrote according to the wisdom that was given to him and is in all the scriptures speaking about those things, some of which are difficult to understand, which the unlearned and twisted twist to their own destruction. Peter seems to be placing Paul's writings on a par with the other scriptures. So there was an emerging awareness, at least we can say, among the apostles that their writings were going to be the authoritative writings that were going to lead the church. Uh, precisely because it was the teaching of the church, as mm. in 1 Corinthians 11. I pass on what I what I receive in talking about the Eucharist. It, it, I handed this on to you because I received it, and I, because yeah. I received it, therefore it is trustworthy. Yeah, the, the, the question would arise on the one hand, I don't think we have any evidence one way or the other whether Paul or James or Peter had any idea that eventually what they were writing would be collected one day into a book that we now call the New Testament, but that they recognized that what they were writing was the part of the tradition. Yeah. was different. And the verse that I I think is so important, which actually takes us on to the next step in our development, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions— which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter. And so we're re- he's recognizing there that this tradition, whether it's the writings in a general sense or the teachings or the traditions that they are protecting and preserving and guided by the Spirit are being passed on orally, but we also see them arise in writing. And you made the point, Ken, that sometimes if it weren't for the problems in the churches, we wouldn't have had the writings. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think this is extremely significant because the fact that, as Father was emphasizing, and you emphasized that these apostles felt this holy obligation to only pass on what Christ had taught them or what they had learned from other apostles that had been taught by Christ in the case of Paul. Well, in Paul's case also, he had direct revelation from, from Jesus on this. But my point is this. This is exactly 
the attitude of the Catholic Church. Many people think the Catholic Church is free just to make up whatever it wants to believe about things. And that is absolutely one diametrically opposed to the truth. The Catholic Church cannot teach anything officially unless it believes it comes from Christ mm-hmm. and has been passed down through history. And so, for example, sometimes my students will ask me, well, why can't the church allow uh, married men to be priests or women to become priests and so forth? I said, they don't have that authority. The Pope doesn't have the authority to change 2,000 years of church teaching and tradition. He has a responsibility to be faithful to that. And it's exactly the same pattern we find in the apostles. Going along with that, in the early days of the church, when very quickly the bishops and other defenders of the faith were fighting against the rise of heresies, or as Paul said, other gospels, what was the touchstone that they would use as an argument to determine whether one view was authoritative versus another? Didn't they say, did it come from a church of an apostle? Yeah, that's right. They could trace it back to an apostle. That was the key, whether it was trustworthy or not. And that was one of the criteria of which books would be included within the New Testament. It was either from an apostle or from one of the assistants of the apostle, like, for example, the Gospel of Mark. Mark, we're told by Irenaeus in the late second century, was Peter's assistant in Rome, and that he wrote down what Peter had preached about the life of Jesus. It's interesting, by the way, with regard to that, that uh, you get in Mark certain uh, certain touches, certain yeah. insights into Peter, which are not flattering. No, that's true, yeah. But it's as if Peter said, well, Mark, that's the way it was, let's be honest. (laughs) That's right. Well, in the end of the first century, we have the accumulation of books that are growing as a part of the tradition. You have the oral tradition that you see referenced all through the New Testament. I mean, those, I remember when I was a Presbyterian, the idea of oral tradition as the foundation of the New Testament bothered me. I thought that was just a liberal idea, but the reality is it's almost every New Testament book refers to this tradition that people are to receive, to believe, to protect, and to pass on. And one of the key passages that I always point to that talks about that is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul is talking to Timothy, instructing him what to do, and what does he say? Paul says to Timothy, what you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paradises. Paul to Timothy to others to others to others. Radices. Handing on. Tradition. Yes. Exactly. Of course, that's also the foundation to the apostolic succession, the idea that this authority and truth is passed on. It's not merely in a written text. It's passed on. But we see by the end of the first century a collection of a variety of books. We have these letters that have arisen often because Paul or James or Peter are writing to places where there are problems. But also we see the rise of the Gospels, right? And uh, the Gospels are have a variety of sources, but there are other books And some of the earliest lists we have, and this is what's interesting, that by the end of the first century, there isn't just the books we have in our New Testament. There's a few other books that others consider equally as authoritative. What are some of those? 
Well, one of those books that we didn't, it's not really a book, it's its a small, a booklet, but we didn't know about it until the year 1875. But most scholars, I think, believe that somewhere in the last quarter of the first century, there was a, um, a book we call the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. By the 90s of that, you have Clement of Rome, who is writing two epistles, certainly one, maybe the second one is from another source, but certainly Clement, who is the Bishop of Rome, is writing to the Corinthians. Um, and there you have a long, long letter that is uh, sort of a, an authoritative source and is cited by others later as being an authoritative source. Yeah, for at least 60 years after he sent that letter there, for at least 60 years, it was read in the liturgy. Hmm. Uh, then what's interesting about the Didache is because in chapter 9 and in chapter 14, for example, we have Eucharistic prayers, very primitive Eucharistic prayers. But nevertheless, what it shows is that there was some type of an established liturgy at this point. In other words, every pastor wasn't uh, making up his own liturgy every Sunday or even in every local church, there were variations in the worship of individual churches, but they had common elements in them. And the Didache shows us that there were standard prayers that were being said in these in these churches. I, I think before we pass up the letter of Clement yeah. uh, to Corinth, we should uh, point out also, this never occurs in excerpts that I read, but toward the end, he, he wrote the letter to settle a schism in Corinth. Uh, and at, toward the end of the letter, he equates his authority with that of Jesus Christ. He said, said, Jesus Christ has said this to you, and now you better straighten this out. He also says at, at, toward the end, also, what you've just heard through the Holy Spirit, through us, oh, that good. is authoritative. So he spoke right there, we see, in about the year 90, we see the, the Bishop of Rome speaking authoritatively in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, the other the other fact that's interesting about that, Fathers, I didn't remember that part of the, the letter myself, but if you remember Ignatius of Antioch, who's writing no later than about 117 AD, he says something very similar. He says that, the bishop is like God the Father, the priests are like Jesus Christ, and the deacons are like the servants of the Holy Spirit. And he says that in order for you to have a valid Eucharist, in order for you to have a valid worship, you have to be in union with the bishop. So there's a sense of hierarchy and a sense of authoritative structure right there in the early church. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to pose this question to the two of you. If you were a Christian in the year 150 or 190 or 200, could you have held the view sola scriptura? Where would you have looked to know what is true? All right, let's take a break. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, 
I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. This is Marcus Grodi with Dr. Kenneth Howe and Father Ray Ryland, and we're trying to summarize a big, big discussion into an hour. But uh, at the end of, of the last segment, I posed the question. You know, people assume, and so many Christians today assume sola scriptura as the foundation for knowing what you believe. But the, the other problem is, could the Christians of the second century, 200 A.D., 250 A.D., how would they have known what's true? Could they have followed sola scriptura? Let's go back a little farther than that. Let's go back uh, reading from the book of Acts in chapter 8. The, Philip the deacon encountered the Ethiopian eunuch yes. who was reading sacred scripture. Uh, evidently, uh, if this were the Septuagint, he understood Greek, or if it were the Hebrew Bible, he understood Hebrew. And uh, Philip comes up to him and says, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And he, he, he said, well, of course, that's what the Bible says. No, notice what the eunuch said. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? I can put meaning in these words, but how can I know it's the correct meaning? I have to have guidance. And that's the purpose of Sunday schools. If it were Scriptura Sola, all you do is put a, a Bible in the hands of every member of your church and go from there. But Sunday schools are intended to teach people what to find when they read the Bible. Well, you wouldn't need seminaries. You wouldn't need preaching. You wouldn't need yes. Bible commentaries on the radio yes. because the Bible would be completely sufficient and explaining of itself. That's sort of the logical conclusion of, of where you would take that. But many Protestant Christians, um, those that are especially educated in theology, they understand the importance of teaching and of even passing on their own traditions. I mean, there have been a number of books written called The Reformed Tradition, The Calvinist Tradition. So people understand that fact. But I suppose the big, real, the really the big difference is what is the role of that tradition? Does it guide us, or is it something that we can willy-nilly throw out when we want to? And you'll find you know, more traditional Protestants will say, no, we got to hold on to that tradition. And others will say, oh, no, you can get rid of it whenever you want. This is the underlying issue. For example, in many Protestant churches today, it's only been in the last, what, 30 years that they have women clergy. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm just saying the interpretive question, the hermeneutics is, do we read the Bible in the light the way it's been read for, in their case, maybe 400 or 500, or maybe right. they would say 2,000 years, which never read it as being something right. where women would be would be clergy within the church. But then others would say, well, we don't have to hold to that tradition. So they would reject even their own traditional readings of the text. One of the difficult things is, is to believe that when you're interpreting Scripture, that you're interpreting without any influence by your culture. But there's not a one of us that is blind to how we've been influenced by our culture. I mean, obviously, I was brought up in Ohio. Certain families, certain environments, certain schools, certain teaching, listen to certain 
kid programs, you know, so all, you know, I'm saying all my life I've been influenced in many ways and I'm blind to ways that those interpret uh, affect my interpretation of scripture. Yes. You simply can't leap out of your own skin. That's I remember right. a friend of mine uh, was discussing a certain passage in scripture, uh, a key passage with a friend of hers who was, we would call a fundamentalist. And, uh, and, and my friend said, well, why is it that we both love the Lord? We, we invoke the Holy spirit and that we get such different interpretations. And he said, well, that's just because you don't interpret it right. <laughs> now, if you just take it, put aside all, your old Catholic traditions and take the pure word of God, you see it means this and this and this, and what she saw was exactly what her denomination teaches. Exactly. You can't leap out of your own skin. You know, there's another, we're talking about this idea of you know, what would the early church have, would they looked at a sola scriptura idea, the Bible alone, and you know, the verse that most got my attention when I was on my own spiritual journey was First Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And let me read that because it's such an important verse. Paul was writing again to the same young clergyman, only in an earlier letter, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, interestingly, his normal way of teaching was face to face. That would have been Paul's normal way. But in case he doesn't get there, he passes along these additional instructions to pass along. But then he goes on, how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. What's the significance of that, Father Ryland? Yes, I remember St. Paul Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is just one block down from Harvard Yard, has that the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark, the truth emblazoned in granite across. And it was, I asked the, the pastor some years ago, if that were unintentionally said, it was aimed at the university whose, whose, <laughs> whose motto is Veritas, truth. That motto, by the way, originally was Christus Veritas. The original oh, model really? of Harvard was Christ the uh, truth. Uh, wow, I didn't but know that. But that was changed uh, back in the 18th century. The, the key of that passage is, if you look at it clearly, is that the church established by Jesus Christ in his apostle, guided by the Holy Spirit, is the pillar and foundation of truth, not the Bible alone. Well, you know, Marcus, there's a way of looking at this also that's interesting. If we were to assume for a moment that the Bible is completely sufficient for arriving at what true Christian doctrine and morals is to be, the conclusion would that we'd have to come to would be, on the basis of Acts chapter 15, is that the church must determine what the proper interpretation of Scripture is. Mm-hmm. You remember then the Council of Jerusalem, which is really the first ecumenical yeah. council, although we yeah. call Nicaea that, is the question there was, well, do these Gentiles have to become Jews? Do they have to become circumcised before they can fully be accepted within the community and be, in fact, saved? And the bishops and the priests, we call them today, but the, the leaders came up. And they came together as the, an ecumenical council to determine what was proper and in that context, they interpret Scripture. And an important footnote to that is that the decision already been made in Acts 10 in a special revelation to Peter. Yeah, yeah, so sure. that it, like every ecumenical council, 
called ecumenical council. It became ecumenical because it was confirmed by the successor of Peter. In Acts 10, the, the, the answer comes, this is what you shall do. You know, Peter resisted. In Acts 11, he tells the, the fellows back home, and they said, what have you done? But then Acts 15, he speaks, and they confirm. So that it was, it was already made, and that's let's, true of every ecumenical council. Let's uh, let's address this because we're running out of time. The second century, third century, we have not only the passing and protection of oral tradition, the traditions you, that you are to receive and pass on, but we have the the writing of these epistles. We have the Book of Revelations. We have Gospels. But we have lots of other books: First Clement, Didache's Shepherd of Hermas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of, of the Apostles. We got a number of other books. We see a couple times we have residual lists uh, that have survived the test of time, but they don't equate necessarily with our New Testament. Sometimes these lists include books that are in our New Testament. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they include other books, but we have also the rise of other heresies that pick and choose from books. We have Marcion that only wanted half the Old Testament or half the New Testament, wanted to choose for himself which books were inspired. And we also have Arius, who was essentially sola scriptura. You know, he wanted the Bible alone and denied what the church is teaching. When does the book that we call the scriptures arise and how? In its final form, yes. under the fourth century. Yeah, about that's that when time. that's when the you canon the was Testament, settled. Yeah. And and it was this this is something else to consider. And this was a, a key a consideration in my own pilgrimage. If I realize, I began to realize that the New Testament is the summing up. It's the epitomizing of of the church's teaching. And I began to say to myself, now, I, I accept this as authoritative and true, but if I accept it as authoritative and true, how can I reject the church whose teaching it is? And if the church is false now, how could she have been true back there? And the converse also is true. That mm -hmm. issue of the canon, I think, is a very serious well, it, uh, issue. To and how did it come about? It was a council, right? Yes. Several councils, the council yes. at Rome, the council at um, Hippo, the council at Carthage in 382 AD, 393, 397. Yes. At these councils with St. Augustine and the early fathers of the church. Mm -hmm. And we see the foundation, partially because they're fighting against heresy, but because they want to make sure these are the books we can, in fact, trust for our faith. We've run out of time. Father Ray Ryland, thank you very much for this discussion. Dr. Howell, thank you very much for joining. All of you who are listening, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. I want you to remember that you're an important part of this program every week, so listen and come with your questions. You can go to our website, deepinscripture.com, to find out what text we'll be looking at next Wednesday. You can also get some of our Scripture notes. You can get involved with a discussion, a forum, and also get our specials each week by going to our website, deepinscripture.com. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. God bless you. Be with you again next week.